All right, we're back in Acts this week. Um, if you weren't uh, with us last week, uh, we had a very non-traditional Sunday where we worshipped with uh, Tate's Creek Presbyterian Church in the morning. And uh, if you weren't able to be a part of that, I'd really encourage you to go back and listen uh, to Robert and I's mini sermons. It's more like I had a mini sermon and Robert had a normal sermon. So, um, <laughs> it, 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 important words uh, for us. And um, uh, and then uh, Sunday night uh, we had a little bit of program, and uh, Paul Adams made a really fantastic video that if you've not seen yet, uh, you have a hard time finding. Uh, via social media, again, you can email me, and I'd uh, love to shoot you a link. It's really, really, really good. I encourage you to take part in both of those if you haven't been able to. Uh, today, we are back in Acts, and uh, this is actually going to be our last passage in Acts for a really long time. Um, we're going to come up on Holy Week starting next week with Palm Sunday, followed by Easter. And uh, between Easter and um, me taking a few weeks off, uh, we're going to do a, kind of a, a topical series on uh, what it means to be the church. So um, this is our last time in Acts for a while. Um, let me pray and we'll get started. Father in heaven, thank you uh, for your word, your word that can um, be assimilated into truths and confessed in our faith. Uh, Lord, your word that can be uh, sung by men and women and uh, boys and girls uh, in all different languages. And Lord, we thank you uh, for your word that we read and meditate and we apply to our lives. Lord, all these very ways that your word can be expressed, Lord, I pray uh, that we see beyond the principles of your word to see the person who is the word made flesh. Oh, Lord, ignite our hearts with these words. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, John Perkins uh, has become a personal hero of mine. Uh, he is almost 90 years old. You guys have heard me talk about him at least once before. And uh, you need to know a little bit about him because uh, our text today actually has a lot to do with his life. Uh, John Perkins uh, was born in southern Mississippi. Uh, he was born into a family of sharecroppers. And uh, in southern Mississippi, back in the 30s and the 40s, uh, he was exposed to really uh, intense uh, racial oppression because he was a black man. And uh, the, probably uh, the, the, the signifying moment of his life was uh, that he saw his brother shot and killed unjustly uh, by the police. Uh, because of his race. And uh, like so many other African Americans in the South at that time, uh, he fled his hometown of, uh, in, in southern Mississippi for California. And growing up and ag doing agriculture uh, really set him up well uh, because it, it ingrained in him some really deep, strong work habits. And uh, he got to California. He had uh, opportunity there in a way that he never would have had in Mississippi. Uh, he got married. He had a child. He was able to buy a home. And things were going great for John Perkins. Then he became a Christian. His son was four years old and he came home and his son was singing the song, um, Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world, red and yellow and black and white, they are precious in his sight. And John Perkins, for whatever reason, his ear turned up, really piqued his interest and he began to inquire about this Jesus that his son was now singing about because his son had been attending these Bible clubs in their neighborhood. 
And so he started going to this church and he was uh, converted and then he was discipled in this multicultural church and he began to lead his own Bible clubs in his neighborhood. And he was having great success doing it. And then he was called to the ministry. And his call to the ministry for him was an unexpected one. Not because he was going to have to give up his career, but because of the kind of ministry that God called him to. Because what God called this man, John Perkins, to was to move his family from California back to Mississippi. I mean, can you just imagine the kind of conversations that John Perkins was having with God? (laughs) You know, he was looking in his prayers being like, are you serious? I'm going to have to raise my son in the same kind of environment that I grew up in? You've got the wrong guy here. I mean, don't you know, Lord, I mean, what I was able to do just part time on the side while having small children and working a full time job. And I had great success just doing this with a sliver of my life. Now I can build upon that if I'm able to quit my job and do this full time. I can make a much bigger impact in your kingdom if I can just stay here in California. God, don't you understand that the the church that I've been discipled in is a multicultural church? How in the world am I going to do a multicultural church in Mississippi? See, John Perkins was confronted by the grace of God. This wasn't the first time he was confronted. Just like for all of us, he was confronted about his sin at his conversion. He was converted about his sin. He repented. He received forgiveness of his sins. He had received grace personally, but needed to be confronted about the grace that would now flow through him. See, we all love the grace that's for us. It's uh, for us personally, don't we? I mean, grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. There's a name I love to hear. I love to sing his words. It sounds like music to my ears. The sweetest name on earth. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus because he first loved me. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. See, we love God's grace that's extended to us in Christ. And for the Christian, it should never get old. We should always want to sing those songs. I sing those songs to Brooks every single night I put into bed. And we're in constant need of it. And that's why you're here today. You needed another dose. We're so glad you're here. Hallelujah. But there comes a time when God's got to confront you again. He's got to confront you with the truth that God's grace isn't just extended to you. It's also extended through you. Through you. That's the truth that John Perkins had to be confronted with. That's the truth that we were all confronted with in Acts chapter 10, the last passage we looked at. Peter had to see in Acts 10 that God's grace was not just for him and his people, but it was for all people. And here's why this is an important text for me and you tonight. See, our preference is to see church like a restaurant. We come in, we get our fill, our bellies get full. We see our real need for grace and we get that need met by the word, by the sacraments, by being with God's people. And we leave here on a high. 
But the church is a lot more than a restaurant. The church is also a food bank. Now you should come in and eat until you're so full you can't hardly get up. We hope you do. But we also hope that you stuff some grace in your pockets and you carry some bags in here and you stuff those full of grace too that you can give out to the rest for the rest of the week. We need to make this transition that the church is more than a restaurant. It's also a food bank. And that's the shift that we see happen in our text tonight. Acts chapter 11, verses 1 to 18. Let's read it together. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city. So you see, you see here that we get a, it's all set up for us in the ver, first four verses. Then we get to verse 5, and we're going to hear Peter's recounting what happened in chapter 10 with Cornelius. Here we go. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again to heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord. How he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. The word of the Lord. All right, so three points. Uh, Not always three points, but there are three points tonight. The first one, uh, verses 1 to 3, we see the need for confrontation. In verses 4 to 17, you see the confrontation itself. In verse 18, you see the results of confrontation. Okay? So number one, the need to be confronted. So the last chapter and a half or so, Peter's been on this ministry tour. It all started back in chapter 9, verse 32. In chapter 9, verse 32, we see him, uh, he's in a city and he heals a man named Aeneas who is paralyzed. He says, get up your mat and walk. Then he goes to Dorcas. Dorcas is dead and Dorcas is raised to life by the power of Jesus Christ. And then in chapter 10, you have this whole episode about Cornelius, this Roman centurion, the person who's the least likely person to ever be enfolded into what is at the moment almost all a Jewish Christian church. 
And word gets back to the apostles. Peter's out doing ministry. The apostles, there are, you see it there in verse 1, and the brothers, uh, they get word about this thing that has happened with the Roman centurion, that he's been converted, that he's been baptized. And you know what the Jewish church was doing? The Jewish Christian church, they were saying, man, we love what's going on with Aeneas. We love what's going on with Dorcas. But we're not so sure about this Cornelius incident. They were a bit salty about what was going on here. And so Peter comes and he has this conversation with them. And you see that there's anger in their undertones. And you see it with the way that Luke uses the term circumcised in verse 2 and uncircumcised in verse 3. See, for Jews, their circumcision was the sign, it was the brand, it was the marker of being in. And uncircumcision was the sign, was the brand, was the marker of being out. And God's the one who gave it to them. They didn't create it. And God gave it to them so that they would, not not so they could have this us versus them mentality. He gave it to them as a tangible sign to remind them of their unmerited chosen status before him. It was something that was meant to bring deep humility But now this sign, this marker, this brand has led them astray. It led them to have religious and racial prejudice against all Gentiles, all the uncircumcised party, because they're out. It's now us versus them. They had totally forgotten what made them special before God. It wasn't their Jewish status. It wasn't the temple. It wasn't their tradition. It was God's grace to them. That's what made them special. And they needed to be confronted about being more committed to being racially Jewish than being spiritually Christian. Now, you might be thinking, all right, Marsh, don't be so hard on these Jews. Um, This is a new day in salvation history. Uh, God's being a little more inclusive than he used to be in the Old Testament. That thing's archaic. Just give them a break. Give them some time to adjust here. It's still a really young church. And you're right. With the New Testament, there are some things have changed. But God has always desired to have a multi-ethnic people for himself. This wasn't some new biblical idea that happens in Acts. Remember Genesis 12 when God creates a people for himself? When he creates a people for himself, he chooses Abraham. And right in the middle of his choosing, God throws in a commission that Abraham's to be a blessing for all nations. You keep moving on. You get to Exodus chapter 19. And he call, God calls his people a kingdom of priests. And there would be a kingdom of priests not just among themselves. But there would be a kingdom of priests to the nations. Psalm 67 reads like this. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. Grace to us. Now he gives the purpose behind all this grace to us, all this blessing to us, his face shining upon us when he says that your way may be known on earth, that your saving power would be known among all nations. Let the peoples praise you. Oh, God, let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Psalm 67, all the nations, a multi-ethnic people for God. You keep 
moving down closer to the New Testament, you get to Isaiah 60. And here's what it says. Arise, shine, for your light has come. And the glory of the Lord has risen upon you, and His glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light. See, all these passages would have been known by those people in verse 1. Those apostles and those brothers, those, those Jewish Christians, they would have known those passages. So why are they now throwing shade on Peter? How could they have not connected the dots? How could they have not seen that the inclusion of Cornelius and his household was a part of God's design all along? And it's because they're blind. And so are we. See, here's the, tr- the, here's the truth about the ugly nature of sin. The truth about the ugly nature of sin, especially racial prejudice, is that we're blind to it. The Christian church around the world is in the middle of the season of Lent. And a few weeks ago, uh, we told you about something that we're doing as a church, uh, this thing called the Repentance Project. And the Repentance Project uh, throughout Lent uh, tells you the history of uh, race in America. And it's a sad history. And one of the readings from one of the early days in Lent was about the slave trade in Africa. I'd heard about that. And I'd thought about slaves coming to America from Africa and what that means for us, at least a little bit. But what I had never considered was what the slave trade did to Africa. And what this reading led me down the road on is what I found out was that the slave trade, what it did to the continent of Africa, is still being felt today. Because what, they, what happened to them is that they lost tens of millions of able-bodied people, mostly men, to the slave trade. And so when the slave trade ended in 1807, the economies crashed because no longer was there this influx of, uh, influx of money from the Americas and from Europe to fund their life. And part of, the, the, uh, part, of, part of what was given to them as payment wasn't just money, it was also guns. So the economy collapses. Violence is now introduced. And there's chaos in Africa. Why? Because of slave trade. Never thought about that before. So what I did is uh, I ended up seeing one of my friends uh, who lives in the neighborhood, uh, and he came to America when he was little with his family, and they were fleeing uh, war in Congo. And, um, and I was with him this week, and I was just telling him, I was like, hey, man, I was learning about what the slave trade did in Africa. And he looked at me like, bro, how have you not thought of that before? You know why. I'm blind. Now this is something that every Christian in every age has always had to deal with. Having unseen racial prejudice is not just a white American problem. Turn on the news. It's really all about that's going on around the world. What do you find out? It's about race. This is all part of the fallen condition, and it's something in need of being confronted. Not just in Acts 11, verses 1 to 3, not just for white Americans, 
but for all of us. There is this need to be confronted by the grace of God that will flow through us to people who are different from us. And then you get to the second part of this passage, and Peter starts talking. He starts opening up his mouth. He's giving a a, a defense of the accusations that are coming to him by the leaders of the Jewish church. And what's interesting about his defense in verses 4 to 17, yeah, verses 4 to 17, what's interesting, at least to me, is what he doesn't do. He doesn't return anger for anger. But what he does is he gives this reasoned first-person account of what has happened to him. He's just telling a story. He's just given his testimony about how he got on board with God's mission of building a multicultural people for himself. And he just summarizes what happened in Acts chapter 10. And he starts speaking. He speaks as one who had to have his own attitude changed about race. And as I was reading about this, one author says that Peter received four hammer blows that he outlines in verses 4 to 17. Four hammer blows. The first one, he gets this divine vision. You see it starting right there in verse 5. And he wasn't in prayer like, Lord, show me how to reach people who are different than me. Lord, would you give me a ministry? Really looking for one these days. He doesn't do that. God gives him a hammer blow by giving him a vision. Not once, but gives him the same vision three times. The second one you see is the command. Again, he's not looking for ministry opportunities. God commands him to go with Cornelius' associate and share the gospel with Cornelius. In the third blow, he gets is the preparation. He wakes up to the fact when he gets to Cornelius' house that no other Christian was preparing Cornelius to hear this message. God was preparing Cornelius with it for this message. And it, it strikes a blow to Peter and what he thinks about race. And the last one is finally that he sees that what happened to these Gentiles, Cornelius' household and others, had happened to them in Acts 2, but just in a Jewish kind of way. And so by the time that God lands all four of these blows to Peter, his attitude about race has changed. See, Peter was in the same position to the chapter before as now the Jerusalem churches. God confronted Peter, and now Peter's confronting the church by standing in solidarity with them as a fellow struggler. Peter's not some inclusion crusader. He knows the prejudice that's in his heart is as natural as it is for the church in Jerusalem. And that's why he extends an invitation to them. Do you see it in verse 17? If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us, When we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? Look at the pronouns there. He uses the pronouns us and we instead of me and I. Why does he do that? It's because he's extending this invitation. He's issuing issuing to them a request to join him in this ministry to the Gentiles. So he starts out the confrontation as a fellow struggler, and he ends the confrontation as a broken leader. And friends, this is where I stand today. Many of you are way further ahead 
and understanding the church's multicultural, multi-ethnic, multi-racial identity. You're much further ahead than I am. Others of you are further behind and all that's okay. But if we really take this up as a church, we, we've got to understand something. That we will fail. I don't know if it was a few months or a few years, but what happened between Acts 11 and Galatians 2? Something shifted back to its default setting for Peter. It got so bad that Peter was uh, preferring Jews in a way that Paul had to confront Peter to his face. So sure, we're going to fall back too. We take up this invitation We're not going to be perfect. Things aren't going to change overnight. So what do we do? Do we just sink down in our seats and feel guilty? How are we supposed to respond? What results should we expect when we're confronted? Look at verse 18. Verse 18. When they heard these things, they fell silent. And secondly, and they glorified God. Do you see it? There was silence that was followed by singing. Silence followed by singing. Silence followed by singing. Silence, man, it's hard for us, isn't it? I mean, we're activists by nature. We're doers. We like a good, uh, we, we like a good to-do list. Uh, we, we like a checklist. We like a strategy. We like a plan. And silence is about the farthest thing that's natural for us, but silence is so important. See, confrontation about something, especially like racial prejudice, makes us either hyper-defensive or hyper-active. But both being hyper-defensive and being hyper-active are antithetical to silence. See, if you're sitting there and you're stewing and you're just thinking, Marsh, we get it. Lay off a bit. I'm not prejudiced. I have a black friend. I'm colorblind. Friends, that's being defensive. That's not being silent. All right, you got the hyperactive folk. You're sitting there going like, man, that's what I'm talking about, Marsh. I'm so glad you're finally addressing the relevant issues of our day. Get after it. What can we do around here? Sign me up for that committee. It's being hyperactive. It's very opposite of being silent. And I understand the sentiment of both. But there's this all-important step of silence that we must take as a collective. Because here's what silence does. Silence takes a truth from being something that we assent to and becomes a conviction. Silence leads you down a road to repentance and humility. But silence isn't the goal. It's a step, but the goal is, and they glorified God. Do you see what happened? They started out criticizing in verse 2, and they end up singing in verse 18. See, yeah, you got Cornelius and his household. They're singing their guts out. And now the Jewish church has joined in that singing. How do they get there? 
Well, it's because Peter forced them to think about their own salvation in verse 17. We read that earlier. So he confronts them with the grace that they received in verse 17. They're silent the first half of 18. And I think that what happened during that silence was that the gift of their salvation took root. They remembered that they too were on the outside of God's promises. They too remembered that Jesus had sought them out in Acts chapter 2. They remembered how Jesus had found them on, in his public ministry. And this is what cross-cultural ministry does. It reminds you that what's special about you as a person is not your race, but your God. You begin to learn that you can't resist loving other people because God has loved you. See, here's the good news. There's a Jewish man who came and he lived a perfect life. He died a substitutionary death for sins. And he rose again from the grave and he sent his spirit to draw people of Asian descent, African descent, Latino descent, European descent into a family. He loved all of us. He wanted us to be united, not by our ancestry, but by his grace. He's wanted his Holy Spirit to bind us and not our race. He wanted to put a people together who could all sing a common song. Jesus loved the little children, all the children of the world, red and yellow, black and white. They are precious in his sight. Friends, wouldn't it be glorious to sing that song again and again and again with people who are different from us for all eternity. That's where we're headed. That's what Revelation 7 tells us. Is that all the nations are going to gather before the throne and we're going to sing before the Lamb. I sure would like to practice. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's not just something that happened 2,000 years ago that has nothing to do with our lives, but Lord, in fact, it touches some of the deepest places of who we are. Oh, Lord, help us to sit in silence, Lord, that these things would become convictions for us. Lord, that, yes, one day we, we would be led into action. Lord, help us to repent. Help me to go back to my friend and tell him I'm sorry this week. We pray these things in your name. Amen.